Hello, you are listening to Audio Fanfic Podcast. Sea Glass Blue by Mel Forbes on AO3. Rating General Audiences. Chapter 10. He's holding a coffee cup for himself and a bag with two donuts in it. Breakfast for them both. Standing in her doorway, he stares at her in the hospital room and feels like he's going to be sick. When she sees him, she smiles, beckons him in, says, You're late. Though he's not technically late, it's half past nine, and he meant to show up at 7.30, maybe 8, but last night, he stared at the ceiling above him until the small hours of the morning. Then he paced the living room until four, then forced himself into bed and squeezed his eyes shut and hoped that he would sleep. When he left the cottage, he wanted to go straight to the hospital, but he pulled into the grocery store instead, remembering that they had coffee, and bought himself a cup and two donuts. He doubts she's eaten yet. As of last night, she hadn't eaten anything at all since being admitted, and now that he knows what the nurses think of her, he understands why no one forced her to. Sorry, he says, but he's shaken, and his words sound dishonest, and it takes all of his energy to step forward once, then twice. She's out of the bed today, sitting in an armchair by the window, and looking out at the skyline. This morning, she has another big bag of intravenous fluids hanging, her hair is tied back in a scrunchie, and she's wearing a pair of his socks, toes peeking out from underneath the blanket over her legs. Good morning, she says, reaching out her good arm, asking him to come closer. It turns out that she likes kissing, likes being kissed. How did you sleep? Without her, he couldn't sleep, managed maybe an hour or two after so much tossing and turning. Do all human beings sleep better when a loved one is nearby? Yesterday, they spent the whole day trying to turn her hospital bed into a home while they watched movies and half-slept. She thinks Tom Cruise can't act. He knows exactly where to place balled-up sweatshirts and pillows beneath her arm in order to keep the intravenous pump from occluding every few minutes and sounding an alarm. She trembles whenever he kisses her neck. I slept fine, he says, taking one of the chairs in the spare room and pulling it towards her. Sitting down, he watches as her hand goes slack. No kiss good morning. Froing her brow, she knows something's wrong. How did you sleep? Fine, she says, staring at him, skeptical. What's going on? The nurse bombarded him in the hallway. He hasn't had a sip of coffee yet, but he knows it's going to taste bad nonetheless. In movies, people in these situations go to the hospital cafeteria or to the grounds outside and experience every kind of emotional turmoil before coming back and speaking to their loved one in a level-headed manner but he was bombarded in the hallway, just a few yards away from Scully's hospital room. He had three feet, then three feet, then three feet, more to prepare himself. Though he could wait until he heard back from the local oncologists, from Scully's hospice team, he knows he can't hide anything from her. He knows he can't hold back. The nurses were concerned about your white blood cell count, he says, folding his hands on his lap. What is he, a priest? He flattens his palms against his leg breath held. He's not going to cry. Is it too low, she asks. One of my medications tends to do that. Do you remember if they took a complete list? It should have been in the binder. Not too low, he says, shaking his head. It was high. That's normal, she shrugs off. I was admitted to treat an infection. High white blood cell counts are common with infection. But it was really high, Scully, he says, his chest feeling tight. They said they'll have an oncologist here to talk to us this afternoon. They said we should call your team. My team, she echoes, 
and he doesn't want to say the word hospice. He won't curse her. He can't hurt her like that. There's still a chance the antibiotics could change things, he says, but he's unsure if he's reassuring her or himself. He's unsure if he even believes what he's saying. They'll redraw the labs and then, I know, I know, she says, and he wants to put his head in his hands but can't. He wants to go outside and get some space, but he can't. And he wishes the nurses in the hallway hadn't so gently tapped his arm, looked at him with big, consoling eyes, the kind that could speak of tragedy, and then return to a comfortable home at the end of the day, the kind that weren't haunted. He wishes he didn't know. He wishes neither of them knew. He wishes he could repeat yesterday, feeling her laugh against him while Ferris Bueller's day off was on the television, knowing when she fell asleep based on the way she breathed kissing her forehead when she woke up, keeping her warm. He wishes they could go back to the cottage and climb into bed together, pull the quilt over their heads, hide until it all ended. He wishes they were both asleep on the striped couch in her apartment, each waking up midway through the night, but pretending to stay asleep so that the other wouldn't leave. And when he looks at her, he feels as if he's the one who's made her sick, as if he's the one who caused the cancer to spread to her bloodstream, her bone marrow, the rest of her. Before, They thought it was the inoperability of her cancer that would kill her. But no, the cancer will spread elsewhere, that spreading will cause her pain, and she'll die in a haze of morphine, unaware of her surroundings, bruised and infected and in pain, and unable to understand whether or not he's next to her. But he'll be next to her. He knows he will be. He'll stay the whole time. He'll be there the whole time. But now, he needs to prepare himself to watch her die. Now he knows they won't have the summer together. Her face is pale and blank, and she's avoiding his gaze, and though she could ask for the exact number in the high count, though she could go over all the labs with the doctors, though she could tell him what every serum test meant, he knows what this means, has an education to understand exactly how she's dying. The infection. She wouldn't have had the infection if the cancer hadn't spread to her blood, and maybe that's why she's not hungry, why she's bruised, why she looks so thin. She's dying. Why hasn't he truly realized that until now? Before, he knew she was dying, but now, the revelation that she'll die soon feels like a slap in the face, like the wind being knocked out of him. Their days are numbered. He'll only be able to sleep next to her a certain number of times more. Someday soon, he'll be sleeping next to her for the last time. He sets the coffee down on the linoleum floor. Of course today would be sunny. Right when they're both stuck indoors. Right when they're forced to miss out. He wants to take her to a restaurant. He wants to take her outside, so they can both lie down on the warm grass and close their eyes. Do you think? But her voice wavers. She can't finish the sentence, and she covers her face with her hands, cowering over. Not numb anymore. He reaches for her, holding her elbow in his palm, trying to hold something. And he should have kissed her good morning. He should have kissed her good morning. He should have acted as if everything were normal. And he should have kissed her good morning. Mulder, she manages, her chest shaking with sobs, as he squeezes into her chair, as he pulls her against him, as he holds her as much for her comfort as his own. And it hurts that she can cry against him. In his fantasies, this always felt good, holding her, consoling her, taking care of her when she stayed home from work with a cold, keeping her close. But now, he wishes he'd never asked. He wishes they'd never met. He wishes she never came into his life, and simultaneously, he wishes they could die together instead, for he doesn't know how to live without her. As she grips the fabric of his shirt in her hands, as she clings to him, as he holds his breath, for if he moves at all, 
If he looks at her, then he'll cry too. And if he cries now, he doubts he'll be able to stop. And he needs to be strong for her. He needs to be there the whole time. He needs to be there when she dies. He promised. I don't want to die, Mulder, she says, tone so soft and quiet. She doesn't want anyone else to know. She doesn't want anyone else to see her scared. There's supposed to be more. The echo of her laughing, not at stripes itself, but at how bad a movie it was. The way she grimaced when a nurse offered her lime jello. She told him yesterday that she's never seen the last Star Wars, and that she hid that from him out of a naive hope that one day she could tell him and have him be so aghast that he would trot them both over to Blockbuster, rent the tape, and go back to his apartment to watch it. But you've seen the first two, he asked. And she said, yeah, I just never seen the last one. And he asked why not. And she told him how there are books on her shelves that she's gone years without reading, and not for any good reason, not because she was busy, but simply because she never got around to them. And then, when she had picked those books up and realized that, had she read them when she first bought them, they wouldn't have impacted her in the same way. Though she could never say why she strayed from those books in the first place, she felt some kind of a pull, nonetheless. And maybe it was God, or maybe it was something else. She willingly conceded that there were parts of the world that she didn't understand, and she thought maybe that had been a sign. That she could imagine Mulder forcing her to watch it, then maybe they would actually would watch it together. And then she scrunched up her face, sick of stripes, and asked if they could change the channel. He takes a deep breath and stops holding back. What would happen if I lived? Half an hour ago, the oncologist left, and the nurses updated Scully's hospice team, took more labs, asked if she wanted anything specific for lunch. Of course, she doesn't want to eat lunch, so she had no requests, but he wished he could say, chocolate pudding, on her behalf, wish he could feed her himself. Now that the nurses are gone, he's back in bed with her. The hospital room door is closed, both of them on their sides, reaching for each other. He doesn't want to be that far from her. She held his hand so tightly all morning, while they sat in separate chairs. He hopes she left a bruise. I'm not being unrealistic, she clarifies, but the question makes his heart pound nonetheless. She wants his fantasies, and though he wants hers too, he finds himself wishing he didn't. No, the mystery is better, especially when they'll never have such things. I do want to know, though. If we were to have a life together, he asks, for he can't deny her anything. Not now. Not ever. A bigger one, she says, and he tenses. Yes, a bigger one, because they do have a life together right now, and when they return home, they'll continue to have a life together. The oncologist said she could have six more months, though everyone in the room, and everyone on Scully's palliative care team, found that prognosis a bit too optimistic. But they do have a life together. They do. The blanket is pulled up over her shoulders because she's been so cold, and they have a new antibiotic drip running, something more targeted than the broad-spectrum ones. Once they leave the hospital, though, they have no idea when that will be. They'll need to pick up two new prescriptions for her. Her doctors will do what they can to prolong her life, even if they can't prolong it by much. He's scared of how much he's willing to sacrifice for just a few more months. Do you want children, she asks, looking up at him. Eyes so blue, skin so pale, and somehow the answer feels so obvious, so real, as if he's thought about it for hours on end as if he spent much of his life deliberating upon this choice. Yes, he says, and though the statement feels unreal, though he's never thought about being a father before, he knows that he's telling the truth. He wants children with her. In the back of his mind, he's always known he wants children with her. 
Two, he thinks. An even number. He wonders if he'll need to fight with her when she wants three, then four, just like her family growing up. He wonders if her brothers know that she's married now. Me too, she says. But he knew that already. Of course he knew that. Despite the circumstances, he's not sure he would have married her if he hadn't wanted kids while she had, even though he hadn't yet acknowledged that he wanted them too. I want a house, he says, and he can picture it all, carrying her over the threshold, a kitchen with an island table and bar stools, an old-fashioned stovetop that needs to be lit with a match. Not in the city, somewhere with a backyard, and a wraparound porch, she says, and a big warm fireplace. Do you like dogs? She smirks, asks, would you be willing to walk a dog? Though he knows he's not telling the truth, he says, of course I'd be willing to walk a dog. Not too different from fish. No, not at all. Would you stay at the bureau? And he hesitates long enough that she pushes that question away and says, I'd want to go on vacation once a year. Somewhere warm? Somewhere like here. Somewhere soft. Soft, he says laughing. Maine winters aren't so soft. Rolling her eyes, she says, somewhere without the pressures of city life, somewhere where I don't have to wear makeup. Nothing tropical? I hate the feeling of being too hot. What about an ice storm? I think we both had enough of ice storms. So a gentle summer then. Yes, something gentle. Would you like a bigger wedding? She furrows her brow, meets his gaze, and her eyes are still bloodshot from this morning, Though they both held their composure during the talk with the oncologist, they couldn't conceal their emotions altogether. He wants her to close her eyes so he can kiss her eyelids, one after the other. We're already married, she says. But would you want a ceremony with friends and family, he asks. A white dress, a bridal party, you know. She pauses and manages. I've never really thought about something like that. Oh, come on, he says. Little Dana Scully never planned her future wedding. Little Dana Scully never planned for anything except to anger her parents, she says half-choking. We could do it all again if you want. The whole nine yards. I'm not sure we could. I have money. Well, we have money. She grimaces, meets his gaze, and he knows her answer before she speaks. I don't like the sound of that at all, she says. Does the rest of your family know? Know what? That we're married. Charlie knows, she says. Mom called him the day after you asked. She thought he might fly up. Was he working? I don't think so. And Bill, he asks, changing from one uncomfortable subject to the next. He knows, she says, leaving it at that. Did you tell your family? No, he says, then blushes uncomfortably. He should have said something. Why didn't he tell them? But then again, would they have even cared? She reaches out for him, takes his hand in hers, runs her thumb over his knuckles and beyond and the window brings in bright light, a springtime warmth, no clouds in the sky. I don't know how you feel about it, she says, but I thought that day was perfect. He can't find the words because he doesn't know how he could possibly respond. He says, yeah. I'm glad you found rings, she says. I didn't think we'd be able to find any on such short notice. He had to go to four separate jewelry stores, for he couldn't find one that was willing to size down a ring to fit her with such a close deadline. In the end, he paid an extra $300 for his so-called rush order. When the priest asked if they had anything to exchange during the Mass, she stared down in shock at the rings, but even then, he known it was a good kind of shock. He watched as she carried her hand differently for the rest of the day. A new weight, a welcome weight. He never thought he'd enjoy wearing a piece of jewelry so much. 
but last night he slipped the ring off so that he could sleep, but promptly slumped it back on again, missing the cool, grounding feeling of it, missing the reminder. What did you bring in the bag, she asks, and it takes him a moment before he realizes that she means the bag of donuts, a paper bag from a lifetime ago, this morning feeling as if it happened in another lifetime. I'm starting to feel a bit hungry. Though she must be understating, she didn't eat anything yesterday, he pretends she isn't, says, I picked us up donuts for breakfast. She nods once, asks, could you bring them over? He doesn't want to get up, doesn't want to leave her, but he wants her to eat. So he climbs out of bed, walks over by the chairs by the window, picks up the paper bag from atop one of the chairs. In the end, he never drank the coffee, but at least he has something sweet and enticing to share with her. Two classic donuts, big enough that he's willing to call them lunch. When he's settled down next to her, he pulls one of the donuts from the bag, tears off a piece, holds it towards her mouth. Furrowing her brow, she looks incredulously at him, then takes the pastry between her teeth, covering her mouth with her hand as she chews. I'm going to regret this, she says after she swallows, but she reaches out to tear off another piece anyway. The powdered sugar sticks to his fingers and her lips. The last time they had donuts together, they were on a case in upstate New York in the fall, and the local sheriff and his too kind given the circumstances manner insist that Mulder and Scully go to the local apple barn for hot cider and a donut, and though Scully protested the whole time, she could spout off the number of grams of sugar in one cup of cider with ease, and the one cider donut contains the calories of three whole apples sign encouraging patrons to make healthy choices certainly didn't help. They sat in their rental car and covered themselves in cinnamon sugar, spilling cider on their coats and making the car smell like the most vibrant of autumns. As she dusted off her seat, she hated handing back a messy rental car, a pet peeve exuberated by how Mulder tended to hand back messy rental cars. She said that she hadn't had a yeasted donut in forever. There was a diner where she attended medical school that had the best used to donuts. She'd never had one until then, and had been hooked from the first bite. And then her roommates would bring home a dozen while they studied gross anatomy, and the pile would dwindle, and their textbook pages would stick together from the sugar, and everyone gained enough weight that they forced each other into an intervention. You have to understand, she said. We were under a lot of pressure. We all did what we needed to to get by. Scully, it wasn't war. How about you go through it, she said in a mocking tone and then judge accordingly. No one in their apartment, two bedrooms, one bathroom, four women, a mathematical disaster, piles upon piles of hair, was allowed to bring home donuts. If anyone wished to eat a donut, they were required to do so in the diner itself, and they only permitted to eat one, just one. If the donut was paired with coffee, then no sugar should be added to the coffee. And either way, she said, brushing off her seat, shrugging away the story, I studied for most of my exams that year in a red vinyl booth, donut in hand. It kept me sane, I think. I almost broke the one rule we all had for each other. When everything around me felt so final, so regimented, and frustrating, and challenging. I was glad that I could think of ordering another, and see that going against the arbitrary wishes of others wasn't the end of the world. She buckled her seatbelt, the sign that they needed to get back to work, lunch break over. Looking at the dashboard, he saw that 32 minutes had passed and smirked. She was making them late. You should have just ordered another donut, he said, buckling his own seatbelt, checking the rear views. I've been thinking about that, actually, about the rules we set for ourselves. And what are your rules? That's a little personal. Since when have we strayed away from all things personal? She rolled her eyes for a moment. I don't know, she gave. I'm in my 30s, and all the milestones have passed me by. 
I didn't even realize I'd known them until I aged out of them. All my friends have children, Mulder. I don't know why. I didn't stop and think along the way. Along what way? You know. No, I don't. Just when it's the weekend and you have nothing better to do than sit at home, she gave. Or when I want to be the youngest, the first woman, the most advanced. I thought I'd be happy once I became a certain kind of person. But when I reach those milestones, I'm still me. It's been a letdown. I like you. But I've spent so much time trying to outrun what I don't want to know about myself, she said. I feel like I've run my own chances at being okay. It's just donuts, Scully. He turned off onto the main road. It's not that big a deal. She sighed in the passenger seat. Beyond the windshield, the mountains were covered in bright red and orange, the leaves at peak, the day just cloudy enough to make the hills glow. I don't want to check off accomplishments and abstain from all else, Mulder, she said. When I look back on my life, I want to remember feeling joyful. And then she went on about something within her case notes, and though he could sense that something was weighing on her mind, something bigger than a medical school story, he didn't ask. He wishes he had asked. You told me that college story forever ago, he says. The first donut almost gone, though he hasn't taken a single bite. The diner where you studied. She closes her eyes, embarrassment flushing her cheeks, and he remembers that feeling well. Her body against his in their first motel room together. Her on his bed as he tells her about his sister. Him alone afterwards kicking himself for letting her know so much. The inerrant pain of showing others the small, childish, aching parts of oneself has never impacted him so greatly as it has while they've sat in the car together, high beams reflecting off a highway sign, Atlas open, two hours until they reached their destination. He didn't stop the car because he didn't want to lose those gentle, vulnerable parts of her that hid in the glove box beneath the passenger seat. He didn't want to stop the car because she would fill their tank while he went inside for snacks and bottled water, Diet Coke sometimes, but she tried her best not to especially at night, and when he returned, she would shrug into the passenger seat. Her guard backed up. We're 50 miles out, Mulder. Do you want me to drive instead? Sorry, she says, then reaches for the last of the donut in his hand. He would make a joke if he weren't so relieved to see her eating. I was. Things had happened that week, and I wasn't in my right mind. What had happened? One of my roommates from then died. He wishes he'd asked. He wishes. But she hadn't died that week, she says. It had been months beforehand. I'd only heard about it by accident. They had already had the funeral, and her other friends all attended. The only reason they couldn't tell me was that they couldn't find me. I'd changed my phone number, my address, and how could they have known I would be at the bureau? They'd expected me to go on to work at a hospital, not the FBI. Well, they all took the day off from work and brought their husbands and families to the funeral. You and I were off God knows where. I felt. She trails off, but he understands. I wondered if I was a good person, she says. I didn't want to be someone who missed funerals, but beyond that, I was scared of. There's no use in clarifying. Not when their reality is last fall's nightmare. Back when she was covered in cinnamon sugar and anxious from the sweetness of the cider and uncomfortable because she didn't want her future to look the way it does now. Chewing the last piece of the donut, she lets an uncomfortable silence settle between them. He watches the way her jaw moves, how it clicks every so often, muscle and sharp bone beneath pale skin and freckles. When she isn't wearing makeup, her eyelashes look so lightweight, soft and intricate, and the flush in her cheeks becomes more prominent after he kisses her.
Pointing to the bag, she asks, Are you going to eat that? I'm not really hungry. He's starving, but if she stops talking, he thinks he might fall asleep, and he pulls the donut from the bag, hands it to her whole. She tears off a piece, holds it between them like some kind of communion. Cheers, she says half-heartedly, then takes a bite. Anything you want, he says. His arms wrapped around her, his sweatshirt warming her up now that the medications are finished for the day. He can hold her close without fighting off a plastic tube. He doesn't need to mind the pump now. I want to give it to you. Mulder, she says disdainfully, the vibration of her voice making his chest shake. He wants her to keep talking. The house, he says. They watched the sunset an hour ago. Because he won't get out of bed to turn in a light, they both exist in silhouettes, quiet, simultaneously vulnerable and safe. In the dark, he can tell her he loves her without fearing her reaction. A wraparound porch, she says, tone soft. A big fireplace. It's still cold out in April. We can't. I have the money, he insists. I have. I won't let you live in an empty house, she says uncomfortably. I don't want that at all. When a nurse comes in to check on Scully, Mulder will be reminded of when visiting hours are. He only has so much time. What would you want, then, he asks, when we go home? I don't want to go home, she says. They're not going to discharge me for a while. I don't want to go home at all. We could up and leave, he says, caught in the moment. Go against medical advice. Get out and go back to the cottage right now. Mulder, she says, tone quiet and frustrated. I don't want to leave you here, he says, shaking his head. I'm sorry, that sounds ridiculous. I'm... Let's not go home, she says. At least not yet. Where then? Anywhere. I don't care where. For how long? Just to replace the days we've lost, she says, so that I didn't run it all. You haven't ruined anything, he insists, shaking his head. And I want to go outside, she says, ignoring him. I need fresh air. Right now? Yeah, right now. Okay, he says, nodding to himself, trying to devise a plan. Okay. And he presses the button for the elevator and gazes down the hallway, waiting until the place is empty, waiting until no one's watching. And then he nods to her, signaling all clear. The elevator doors open, and she's bundled up in her coat, his sweatshirt hood covering her hair, the closest thing to a disguise that they could manage. Alongside him, she slips into the elevator, hiding towards the back, trying not to get caught while the silver door slips shut. He presses the button for the ground floor, then leans against the back wall of the elevator. Bringing her hands up to his, she holds him there, looks up at him, and when their gazes meet, they both can't help but laugh. If you like this story and would like to contribute, you can do so by going to our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash audio fanfic pod. As a patron, you are granted early access to one new story of your choosing per month. Thank you for listening. And remember, the stories are out there.